Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... We've got good news. The world is open again, and people like you, people of faith, are traveling to Catholic sites around the world. Want to travel with exceptional Catholic leaders this fall, next year, or in the future? Are you looking to see specific sites, celebrate traditional Latin Mass, or travel to destinations without vaccine requirements? We are here to help you deepen your faith on pilgrimage. Give us a call at 1-800-842-4842 or visit us online at selectinternationaltours.com. Select International Tours is your pilgrimage company, and we have the perfect Catholic trip for you. Are you looking to serve God and society? Consider putting your gifts to work as a lawyer. Ave Maria School of Law has been educating faith-filled lawyers for over 20 years. Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree. Welcome back to Off the Shelf here on Breadbox Media. I'm your host, Pete Sox, a Catholic book blogger. And today we have with us Kennedy Hall. He's an author, broadcaster, and teacher. He's published both fiction and nonfiction and speaks on a variety of topics, including the Catholic faith, masculinity, and conservative political matters. He's a rugby fanatic and lives with his wife and four children in Ontario, Canada. Today we'll be speaking about his book, Terror of Demons, Reclaiming Traditional Catholic Masculinity. Welcome to the show, Kennedy. Thanks for having me. You're quite welcome. So I guess one uh, one way to start this off is to ask a a, a pretty uh, softball question here. But why was it important for you to write this particular book? Sure. Well, like a lot of Catholics today, I'm I'm a prodigal son. I was you know nominally Catholic growing up, you know sort of culturally so. My mom's an Italian immigrant, so that was kind of the extent of it. Um. And then when I had a reversion to the faith, which I talk about in the book, uh, when I was in Mexico, and I was at Our Lady of Guadalupe, the shrine there, it was a very powerful thing. And so I had this sort of deep falling in love with the Blessed Mother and the faith, and it was just sort of one of those radical St. Paul off your horse kind of moments. And then at the same time, a week before we had gone to Mexico, I was on a mission, that's, that's kind of how I had that moment. The week before I left, I found out that we were expecting our first child, who was now six, about six and a half years old. And uh, I was sort of terrified, like as you are when you're about to have kids, you know, sort of a healthy fear of responsibility. And I realized I didn't know what I was doing. And I was such a secular guy before that, that I, I wanted to raise my family properly. And I didn't really know how to do it. And, um, you know, uh, I know Jordan Peterson is really famous now, but I always like to say, like, he's Canadian. So I, I knew him before he was cool. You know, <laughs> um, I used to watch some of his lectures. Um, He's from the University of Toronto. So they would be on public access television around here, actually. Um, so I remember watching these things in you know, like 2014, 2015, before he got famous. And um, one of the things that stuck with me was this idea that if you wanted to fix something, you should first clean up your room. That's his famous thing. So I just, I decided that I should probably just clean up my own self. So that meant for me figuring out what it is to be a man and so on and so forth. And in doing so, I realized there was tons of great stuff out there, but sort of a one-stop shop book 
in my opinion, didn't really exist. So I almost wrote it more to fill a need, but at the same time, it was the result of my own spiritual exercise, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Now, you allude in the preface of the book to the fact that the devil will not like men reading this book, and he didn't care too much for you (laughs) writing it. What challenges did you face along the way? Oh, well, um, public petitions to get me fired from my job, for one, um, for writing the book. Um, uh, weird little demonic things, computers and stuff would just stop working and stuff and I'd have to recover files and it was very difficult. Um, and also as I started to speak up about the topics in my book and explore them with my students, for example, when I was teaching, Mm -hmm. I've since had to leave that job because I'm not a communist. So working for the school system is very hard to do. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, it was, it was remarkable. Like when I was writing the book, it was like. I, you know, I was so uh, oppressed, I would say, and persecuted at my day job to a degree where, like, I was getting physically sick. It was the amount of stress was causing me to have, like, stomach problems. It was crazy. And there was no explanation for it. It was just, and my wife, you know, I would come home from work and she'd go, you know, what happened today? And it would be, you know, a student would ask me about something to do with human sexuality or something. And I was teaching Catholic theology. And it would turn out the kid would go home and say, Mr. Hall hates all the LGBT or something. Mm. And and that stuff just really amped up. Um, so I knew as I was writing it that I must be on the right track because <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, the right people were upset. And um, so, I, I, so I say in the preface, you know, in, at the beginning of the book, um, sort of expect spiritual trials when you go on a journey like this um, because you're going to be doing the right thing. And it's funny. Uh, one of the bloggers who reviewed my book, uh, one of the first guys to review it, he actually uh, wrote about how when he started reading it, he really got angry at me. <laughs> um, and he said it was really weird. And then he realized he was having like a demonic attack and he prayed about it. And he was like, I was just angry because, you know, basically the book, you know, it was calling out certain vices he had struggled with. And it was sort of a, a demonic reaction. So, that's not uncommon um, for me in my experience with this whole situation. So based upon your research while writing this um, book, what do you feel are the greatest challenges that men face today? Sure. Number one is the vice. I, I use the term evil images. I think we all know what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, I use that term because I don't like how the word pornography has been sort of colloquialized you know everyone says oh you're watching all the fear porn or something i don't Mm -hmm. like that um because it's like i don't like the word vaccine passport you know it's a vaccine segregation um i think it sanitizes it and we and we 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 forget what it is it's evil images it's images that are evil and when you do evil things and you don't repent you you know it's a very dangerous way to die Mm -hmm. and um so that's the number one thing because as saint paul says you know the god of the, the nations is their belly, right? Their god is their belly. We live in a very pagan world, uh, very post-Christian in a lot of ways. So easy for us to fall into those temptations. We carry around these. I have a. I'm actually. I have a dumb phone. I'm speaking to you on an old Nokia. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, we carry around these devices in our pockets that, like, it's just remarkable. I mean, we all know what you could access. So the number one is definitely um, is pornography. The second one, though. That I think is part and parcel is this vice of feminism, this 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 reversal of sort of the natural order created with Adam and Eve and the legitimate hierarchy and 
and structure. And the reason is for that is because it, um, when we flip the relationships upside down, we, um, in a way, give men a, an out from responsibility, which contributes to a sort of effeminization. Um, the word effeminacy does not mean femininity, but it just means becoming virtu- less virtuous. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's just, I think those main two, because um, part of that whole paradigm is this idea of sexual liberation, you know? Um, so I would say pornography, evil images is number one, and but that's sort of almost in a sense a handmaiden of the sexual revolution. And uh, there's much, much more, but I think those are the main ones. Mm-hmm. So in the book, you go into depth about effeminate men, and I I think it would be helpful to define that, as I think some may not understand what that meaning means. So what does it mean to be an effeminate male? Sure. Uh, The word effeminacy means a reluctance to suffer due to an attachment to pleasure. So that's a reluctance to suffer due to an attachment to pleasure. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas talks about it. Basically, he uses an analogy and he talks about a door being an effeminate door because it's basically rotting and it yields to blows. It doesn't have any integrity to it. Um, so when someone is effeminate, uh, it means that they are soft, essentially, if we use a colloquial expression. So that means when something hard has to be done in order to do the right thing, that they're likely to do the, likely to do the easy thing and not necessarily the right thing. And that is uh, basically encapsulates what an effeminate man would be is someone who just takes away takes the easy route rather than doing something that's hard sometimes it is easy to do the right thing and that's great when it happens but a lot of times it's not um so we see that today you know uh with for example how a lot of young men will be apathetic towards abortion for example mm-hmm. um they'll say well it's not really my place that's a very effeminate response the response should be it is my place because Women get pregnant from men, <laughs> mm-hmm. so if I'm involved in that situation, therefore I should take responsibility. That's the that's the proper way to do it, and we see this all over the place. Um, some people, because the word effeminacy, you know, English language, people use lots of words for different things. Um, they they use it as an insult or something like that um, uh, to to describe someone who's homosexual or something. Um, that's not how I use it in my book. But that is definitely how I found out after I wrote the book that some people define the word as. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess before we get too far into this here, um, it would be helpful to discuss how did we get here. I mean, in mm-hmm. my life, we went from Paul Ingalls as a father figure to Ray Romano. So what <laughs> what are the roots of this problem? Hmm. Well, you know, I think a big one is birth control. Um, obviously you know, we'll go back to the Garden of Eden. <laughs> and there's, you know, there's a, there's a, there's an aspect there. But as far as like, let's say something we can point to in our recent history where we can kind of understand it, I would say that's a big one. Um, and actually, Paul VI talked about that in Humana Vitae. And I used to play this game with my students where I would pull up a Word document with a copy and paste of Humana Vitae. And I would take out the word birth control. Um, I, would, sorry, I'd make the, I would make the letters white. They couldn't see them. And then I would sort of say, insert what word this is. Because he talks about, you know, if, you know, such and such is instantiated, then, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, the subjection of women and the licentiousness of morals, all this kind of stuff, breakdown of the family, that will all take place. And I would say, what do you think that word is? And my students, they would never know. And I would show them birth control and they'd turn red. Um, I think that's a big one because I would say 
even more than no-fault divorce. No-fault divorce is bad, mm-hmm. but when you take away when you take away an act of nature, you've really messed up. You've really crossed the Rubicon. You know, it's like um, it just facilitates so much more sin. It, 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 you know, you can't have this idea of recreational dating in the way that we understand it today if you don't have birth control. You can't have evil image as an industry if you don't have birth control. I mean, you, you know what I mean? You just you can't have these things because mm-hmm. there's no way to assure that procreation is not going to happen. Um, and then uh, it's also coupled with this lie of feminism where, you know, this thing liberates you. And then men can say, oh, yes, look, you're liberated. So we should do the liberated thing. But really, it's just objectification and, 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 and fornication. I, I would think personally, you know, and that also, you know, obviously, uh, all family situations are a little bit different. Sometimes wives work, sometimes they don't work. I understand that. But with this, um, this idea of birth control, there's now an expectation that all women should go and have a career, um, even if they don't want to, you know, um, because it's like, well, you can control how many children you want to have, you see? So right. I think that's probably as far as an actual concrete thing. If we look at the advent of that in the mid-1960s, like look at films before that, films after that, TV before that, TV after that, uh, divorce rates before that, divorce rates after that, I think it's almost like a watershed moment. Mm, Yeah. So you talk a lot about the devil's playground and, you know, as you refer to it as evil images or pornography. And if if I were a betting man, I'd say that most males have encountered and struggled with pornography at some point. So what are some steps one can take to overcome this vice? Sure. Um, First, it depends on how pernicious the problem is, you know, um, it's hard to get proper estimates of, of levels of addiction. Some people define addiction as frequent use. Some people define it as total dependency. I don't know. Um, but if, you know, if you have a certain character where, and we all have different temperaments that ha- present pros and cons, you know, if you have a certain temperament where you just can't resist using a certain device for a certain vice, then my first step that I would say is you actually have to get rid of the device, you know, like, um, there's a funny, one of those sort of cheesy Protestant movies. It was called, uh, oh, was that one with that X9210 star? I can't remember. Uh, and um, yeah. was, it, was, it not un, was it called Unbreakable or something? No, it wasn't Unbreakable. It was uh, Fireproof, I think. Okay. And uh, anyway, it's a cheesy movie, but it's a fun message. And the guy has an issue with, with that vice. And eventually he's fed up with it. So he takes his computer outside and he smashes it with baseball bat and puts it in the garbage. <laughs> and um, it's like, hey, there's your solution, you know? So that would be first thing is you have to remove those things from your life. Um, but the thing is, when people have actual uh, vices, uh, especially when they border on an addiction, then you also have to find a way to sort of fill that void with something that's not sinful. Um so particularly with something like evil images, one of the main things is that you get a really high dopamine kick. Mm-hmm. That's just the, that's what the brain chemistry, it's like, it's like a drug, right? That's, that's, that's exactly what it is. So you're going to have to find something else that is an exhilarating activity. When that urge comes around, you do that instead. Um, so exercise is really important. Um, even watching something else, you know, there's, there's guys out there who have, who have beaten the vice and they said, when I would have those problems, they would just watch like um, 
police car chase videos or something. Like, it sounds crazy, but it's just, this is something that gets my heart rate up and gets my dopamine kick, but it's not sinful. And then once you get a control of your appetites, you know, um, which you can do by things like having cold showers and fasting, you need to do those sorts of things just routinely. Mm-hmm. Um, then you get to a point where um, your brain chemistry will actually regulate itself. And then you'll actually find that the vices themselves will be less or the in, uh, temptations will be less frequent. And uh, combining with the sacraments and so forth, that's where grace perfects your nature. Mm, indeed. So... It's obvious that society, at least in my view, has worked hard in its attempt to diminish the male, the role of men in, as leaders and, and their overall role in our society today. And I think they've kicked that mission into overdrive in, say, the last two to three decades. And yes. for what I'm about to say, there are those of us who are the exception to this, but it seems to me that today's generation of males are willingly taking the back seat. How do we correct that? Back to you, yeah. Huh. Well, oh, man. I used to be a rugby coach. Um, there's two types of players, and there usually is a combination of the two. And you have the guys who are, want the carrot and the guys who want the stick, you know, that old expression. Some players, if you dangle a touchdown in front of them or more responsibility, they work harder. Some players, if you yell at them like a drill sergeant, they work harder. It kind of depends on the person. Um so our age, in my opinion, I talked to a friend of mine who I played rugby with. He was um, a really high-level hockey coach. And he's, I think he's about, I'm 33, so I think he's in his late 30s, maybe 40 years old now, similar age group. And um, he talked about how they actually had to have seminars about how to coach the, gener- the generation that would be around 10 or 12 or 13 years old now. They basically had to uh, approach them with a different psychology because They've just been so, uh, I don't know what the word is. I don't want to say beaten down. They've just been so effeminized. You know, they, everything is about feelings. Everything is about, um, you know, come on, Jimmy, like you're still really special, you know, and that's fine. We're all special in God's eyes in a way. I get that. But, you know, that's, that's a very modern sort of a soft way of looking at things. Um, so his, he, he was a patient man. He said, you know, Kenny, when I did these seminars, I wanted to punch through the wall. So I'm like, what the heck am I doing here? It's like, and he said, the thing is, once I sort of coaxed the effort out of these kids, then they got their confidence. And then from there, I could get hard on them. And also, um, I think we're dealing with a very timid, very scared, and, and very purposeless generation. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, the first thing we could really do is just sort of offer them something like friendship. Um, and then I think as they come along with us, they're going to see that, oh, wow. You actually like are responsible and you, you can like do a push up and, and like you change diapers and, and your wife actually looks up to you like this looks way better <laughs> than the nonsense I've seen. So I think the first step would be friendship. Um, and then from there, it will depend on the temperament whether you use too much of the care to the sick. Mm-hmm. So, kind of dovetailing off this, this topic kind of came up recently in a um, recent men's group um, discussion we were having. And we're in a world where if like you're in a grocery store and you hold a freezer door open for a lady. She looks at you like you have three heads, tells you you're a chauvinistic pig and says she can open the door herself. So what do we, what do we do in those situations? How do we overcome that? I mean, do we just stop doing it or we continue doing it and hope society changes. Oh, uh, I'm no stranger to controversy. I would just keep opening the door. Um, uh, but you know, I mean, 
it's like, okay, so we've had this stupid mask mandate, you know, here in Ontario this whole time. I, I don't own a mask. I haven't worn one. Um, some people have got mad at me. Most people have actually been really friendly and thanked me in some cases, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some women will be upset. They will. But I also know that someone will say, oh, my goodness, thank you. Like someone, no one's opened a door for me in 10 years. <laughs> you know, um, I think it's just, again, it's just a matter of doing the right thing and the consequences come what may, and you never know who you're going to inspire. I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm out to, maybe I'm on a limb here, but you open a door for a lady, even if she screams at you, maybe later in the day, she's got a moment to herself and she's like, why did I yell at that guy? What's wrong with me? My dad used to open the door for me as a kid or something like that, you know? And um, so I just think it's always the right thing. It's always good to do the right thing and, and, and then consequences be what they are. Right, right. Um, further on in the book, I think chapter seven is pure gold, and it's about um, building a domestic church. And I want to go a little deeper on that topic. What does sure. it mean to build a domestic church, and how do we accomplish this without totally icing our, isolating ourselves from the outside world? Because we are called to be a part of the mm-hmm. world, not absent from it. But and what I mean by that is, you know, we change it by being in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. That's like in the world, but not of the world. Right. Um, okay. Well, it's first things first. Okay. That's 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 that, that journal that. Uh, that uh, conservative religious journal is called first things. It's from that expression. You need your first things first, or you won't get your second thing second, you know? Um, so the first things first is again, back to that analogy from Jordan Peterson about clean your room, you know, um, depending on where you are, maybe, you know, like for me, when I came back from Mexico and I was my poor wife, you know, she's had the, she had this lukewarm, nominally Catholic secular husband. Uh, and he came, I came back a religious zealot. <laughs> It's <laughs> like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do now? So I had to be patient, and I just had to work on my own uh, personal sanctity. I'm, I'm not saying I'm holy, I'm far from it. But I just, you know, it's like, well, I'm going to be in a state of grace now. I'm going to say the rosary now. I'm going to go to Mass now. I'm going to read the Bible now. And that's just, that's going to have the changes it's going to have. So the first things first is you just have to work on yourself. Um, you are, in a metaphorical sense, you are the priest of your household. Um, anyone who's got a parish with a strong priest knows that you have a strong parish. Anyone who knows that you have a priest parish with a priest who needs work, your parish is going to need some work. There's a, it's a, there's a, a co, there's a correlative effect there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, let's say you have your own stuff established. We can always improve, but let's say you just have the basics. Okay. Well, then you know, um, next thing to do is let's say remove all of the things that shouldn't be in a church from your home. You know, we're so used to, sadly, in the last few decades. You know, the churches, the, the parishes themselves have become so mundane with so much stuff of the world. People are talking before Mass and taking out their cell phones and wearing, you know, not wearing nice clothes and things. Um, that's really altered our perception of what's sacred. You know, this place is sacred. We're supposed to be quiet. We're supposed to have a shirt and tie on or, you know, something nice. Um, and in our homes, it can be similar to that. You know, like you go through your movie collection. Well, what movies would you be ashamed to say you're watching when you stand in front of God at the end of your life. Get those out of there. You know, what books would you be ashamed to say you're reading? And, you know, same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, what clothes would you be ashamed of yourself wearing or your children wearing? You know what I mean? We want our young women to be modest. Modest does not mean uh, frumpy or not beautiful. On the contrary, the most beautiful creature ever is the Blessed Virgin Mary. But she was very modest. Um, 
so it's like, you know, all those things. And that's kind of like thinking about, well, what vestments should people be wearing on the altar? You know, that makes a big difference too. I mean, I go to a traditional parish and I can tell you what, you know, it, it father so-and-so wearing a nice, well-tailored chasuble, it looks a lot better and inspires a lot more reverence than when you wear that thing that I think looks like drapes, you know, that uh, sort of ordinary time vestments that kind of look like a bed sheet. That makes a difference, you know? Um, and then in a church, you're going to have prayers. So what kind of prayers are you saying? You know, it's pretty easy. We, you know, my family, just basic stuff. We say the Angelus once a day. We say the family rosary. We say our morning offerings. And we say just quick prayers before bed. Um, we do some catechism when, my, when the wife homeschools. And, you know, so you just build one thing at a time. And before you know it, you're going to say, hey, we've got a totally, let's call it normal life. I mean, we've got friends and we drink whiskey and we smoke cigars and we play sports and we have a good time. Um, but this home of ours is a sanctuary. And um, I think I think there's those are the practical steps you can take. Good advice. Now, underlying this entire book is St. Joseph the Terror Demons. What role yeah. has he played in your life, and how can he help us in our journey through this broken world? Sure. Um, St. Joseph, oh man, I love that. I love that guy. Um, <laughs> so St. Joseph was um, very silent. I mean, I don't know how much he spoke outside of the Bible, but there's no quotations of him in Scripture. Um, but in the human sense, he was Christ's mentor, right? I don't think there's any... I don't think there's any, uh, it's not a coincidence that Christ apprenticed his earthly father in a trade where he would hammer nails into planks of wood, you know, and then he would spend his last moments before his, his death on the cross, you know, with the same thing. Right. Um, that's how his life began. That's how his life ended. You know, there's a heavenly symmetry there. And um, so, so in a sense, obviously Christ is human and divine, but in a sense, St. Joseph raised God. <laughs> so, I mean, we should be calling on the man who was charged with raising God and protecting the Virgin Mary with raising us into men and protecting our families. Mm -hmm. And if, if you think about the hierarchy of the Holy Family, Christ is like literally the head of the human race. He's like he's the head of the universe. <laughs> he can't get much higher than that. Virgin Mary is actually revered as, 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 as hyperdulia, as like the highest of all saints. And St. Say Joseph is third. He's actually under them in sort of the heavenly hierarchy. But in the home, he would have been number one. So we see there, because he's the father, he's the head of the household, we see there this last will be first, first will be last, what Christ says. I think he's almost, in a, maybe he, in a sense he's talking about even his own family. Mm -hmm. And... That is a model for us to recognize that um, in order to lead our families, uh, we have to obey God over man at all times. St. Joseph shows us that. And we have to, and we become the leaders of our family by serving them. And in addition, um, we always take the right road, even if it's the hard road. Think about Joseph's walk. You know, in, in the appendix of the book, I talk about Joseph as the guardian of the Virgin. I think, Chase, I think mm -hmm. it's Chase guarding the Virgin. And um, his, the actual trek to Bethlehem uh, is insane. Like, you know, it gets, it gets in cartoons. It's like this nice walk on a beach through the desert or something. No, it's, it's, it's like rocky and cold and wet. And 
there's robbers and and it's foggy and you can't see and it's elevation and it's all like it's a crazy journey and he took his he took his wife on that you know and um so saint joseph is just he's like the man and we just need to try to be like him any way we can mm-hmm. kennedy where can people find your book terror of demons reclaiming traditional catholic masculinity sure you go i mean if, if people like to go to amazon i know that's some people like it some people don't it's there mm-hmm. um but it's from tan books so you go tanbooks.org i think it's tanbooks.org and uh, the book is there you know just as you would on any website and also um because it's through tan you can order it for your parishes many catholic bookstores are carrying it you could you know if you want to support your local catholic bookstore which i recommend you can call them up and say i'd like to buy this book from you they'll get it within a week or so and you can buy it from them and uh, also parishes are now starting to buy it um so if people want to do things like men's groups um, you can contact Tan, and they can get bulk discounts, so you can do it for everybody in there. Well, Kennedy, that's all we have time for today. I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule and spending it with us. Any closing thoughts? Um, well, thank you, first of all. And um, I hope the borders open one day. So I, I've talked to all these American friends all the time. One day I can come down and meet some of you. Yeah. And um, and please do buy the book. And I'm not saying that just for my own sake, but uh, it was a labor of love. And even if I had to give it away for free, I would. I think it's I, I, I hope you read it. I hope it. With that, you've been listening to Off the Shelf here on Redbox Media. I'm your host, Pete Sox, the Catholic Book Blogger. And until next time, God bless. <laughs>